You're listening to Created Equal Declarations, where we bring you extended conversations with the experts we've interviewed in making this podcast. Today, we hear more from author and professor Heather Ann Thompson. She released a book this year called Blood in the Water about the Attica prison uprising in 1971. But beyond Attica, Thompson is an expert on modern mass incarceration. Here's more from our conversation. I want to spend some time talking to you about uh, the current moment in America and the current racial moment in America, which I spent a lot of time writing and thinking and, and, and talking about. So much of it is framed outside still the context of this mass incarceration question. I mean, you do have people doing really important work in that space yourself. Michelle Alexander's book, of course, uh, is also getting a lot of attention. But we're not yet in the space where we're ready to, I think, acknowledge what, what happened and why, and even more important, what you'd have to do to move in a different direction. You know, I think that we um, – I mean, this is a very, very dicey moment we're living in because on the one hand, I think we are, thanks to people like Michelle pushing the envelope, uh, Michelle Alexander, I think we are in a moment where politicians, uh, at least um, not the Donald Trumps, but certainly uh, both Republicans and Democrats aside from him, are talking about criminal justice reform. They are talking about uh, reforming drug laws and so forth. The problem is um, because there's no sense of history and there's no broader sense of how we got here, um, these discussions happen in a vacuum. They, they, They happen as a policy remedy to something that was much more deeply rooted in a much more historically bound criminalization of blackness. And so therefore, uh, we are simultaneously talking about uh, maybe reforming our criminal justice system while we are still most aggressively policing only black neighborhoods. We are still... uh, absolutely turning a blind eye when there's incidents of law enforcement killing black citizens. And so we're in this, you know, never world right now where we just can't quite connect the dots. And it's critical that we do because, again, this is what Attica shows us. The policies are one thing. But if you don't deal with the the initial hostilities and, I mean, the reason why Attica is allowed to happen the way it is is because the idea is that these are dispensable black black men. And you can not only kill them, but you can actually go on to torture them for days and weeks and months. And that's exactly what happens at Attica. And everyone denies that it happens. So so we've got a lot of work to do to connect those dots between policing and prison. Well, and that denial is a very familiar American narrative, right? Uh, exactly. If you talk about slavery, uh, in in modern America, I think what comes up in most people's minds is this sort of, um, for lack of a better word, genteel system of uh, making people work for free. People don't think of the the sort of moral imperative that was behind slavery, which was the dehumanization of an entire race of people, so much so that you could do anything to them, that you could kill them, that you could rape them, that you could torture them, and it was okay because 
they're not really people anyway. Right. And and in a way, you're sort of uh, talking about what happens at Attica. I mean, what happens at Attica is is very much in the same frame. Well, it is, and there's actually um, there's an there's an interesting corollary to slavery that I think it's worth you know listeners thinking about. Um, it is not accidental that after the Civil War, which I really think about as really the first most important Black freedom struggle, right, where you have four million people um, demanding basic human rights under the Constitution, the reaction to that in the South was to re-enslave them and and, and retake power by the criminal justice system. Uh, the quickest way to get folks to work for you for free, because it's allowed under the Constitution, is to arrest them and criminalize them and imprison them. The, the, the next thing you can do is, of course, you can take away their right to vote when they're prisoners. So this happens in the South after the Civil War. Penitentiaries uh, such as the Georgia State Penitentiary overnight become all black Again, not because white folks stop committing crimes or black folks lose their minds. It's, again, a policy response to the black freedom struggle. And you fast forward to the 1960s and the exact thing happens. You have Harlem, Philadelphia, Rochester uh, exploding in protests. And the response is, let's change the policies. We're going to criminalize black space. There's a conflation of protest and disorder and crime, and we, what do we do? We, we again see this mass criminalization and imprisonment of black folks. So, yeah, history really matters to this discussion because you can do whatever you want to criminals, and it's not coincidental that that happens primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to people of color uh, and African Americans in particular. Yeah. When you think about the racial moment that we're having, and and I I guess I hear a hint of optimism maybe uh, about the way that that uh, policymakers are are now talking about it. What's the opportunity for change? I mean, is there is there a roadmap, for instance, that 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 we could follow to get to the spaces that you're talking about? Well, um, I think I should probably clarify what what exactly I'm. Uh, optimistic about because, ironically, it is not the policymakers who are talking about criminal justice reform <laughs> I'm that, that gives me uh, optimism per se, although I think that they could, to a one, uh, make some pretty dramatic inroads in what has become one of the most draconian systems in the world. I mean, we could certainly roll back drug laws. We could certainly uh, end mandatory minimums. There's, there's a host of things we could do, close facilities. I mean, I could go on and on about what the possibilities for reform are. But I'm not optimistic that that uh, energy, uh, that will it just exists in a vacuum. The reason I'm slightly optimistic um, and maybe growing more so each day, even though ironically things are getting so grim at the same time, <laughs> is um, that the people, the, the people who experience this trauma most directly are not going away. They are speaking up. The reason why criminal justice reform comes on the table was not academic. It was not, it was not the goodwill of the policymakers. It was pushed by the fact that Ferguson was on fire, Baltimore was on fire, Chicago was on fire. I mean, you know, just this past week, 
Charlotte, you know, the all-American dream city (laughs) for the black and white middle class alike, right, is on fire. So what is pushing this agenda is the people who are just done with the trauma it has caused communities. And now inside of prisons in the last three weeks, uh, we have seen that prisoners – as well, uh, are uh, by the way the most marginalized citizens in our country, with the greatest risk that they take when they rebel, have been rebelling across this country behind bars, and so my optimism is also it's a, it's a grassroots optimism. I think we are in the middle of a new movement, but it's also tempered with great uh, fear. Uh, you know, I worry very much uh, about what's happening to the guys in prison who have decided to erupt and to protest. And I worry very much about the backlash to folks in the city, uh, places like Ferguson, uh, for having dared to speak out. So I think that we're, we're in dicey times, as I said. Yeah. I want to get you to talk some about the narrative that Donald Trump, uh, among other other folks, have pushed, which is that that you need law and order. And when he says law and order, of course, he's talking about this really aggressive police behavior toward African Americans. I don't think there's any question about the, the euphemism that that at, and at play there, and and Mexicans, uh, people with brown skin. But the, the 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 argument goes that we need law and order to protect black people from the criminals. We need law and order to protect legal immigrants from illegal immigrants. Uh, we need law and order to protect uh, Muslims who are here and want nothing more than their freedom from those who would come here and and kill us all. Uh, this is this is the framing for uh, much of the conservative argument against. For instance, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. uh, and and these other pushbacks against the police. I, I want to hear you answer that narrative. Well, first, I just want to say that it is it is such a deeply ahistorical reading of what in fact makes communities safe. So, while that is indeed a soundbite political platform that many people find themselves emotionally drawn to, it simply does not stand up to the historical record. We know uh, we know from the record, from the studies, from the experiences of people that um, mass incarceration makes communities much less, less safe. safe. Yeah. Heavy policing makes communities much less safe. And indeed, we also know exactly what makes them more safe. We know or safer. We know that uh, – People with uh, a higher education uh, are much better off than people with no education. We know that people who don't go to bed hungry are much better off and create safer communities than people who are desperate and starving. We know that people who are addicted and get treatment are much better for their communities than people who are addicted, get criminalized, and come back still addicted uh, and also unemployable because they have a criminal justice record uh, and so forth. So this is not mysterious. It's not debatable. It is not a partisan question. It is a simple, factual question that we know the answer to. And so if we are really serious about public safety, we know that this journey we've been on for the last 45 years is literally the most disastrous thing we could have done for the public safety. We're we're doing the wrong thing, even if the goal were 
safer neighborhoods for black people or Hispanics or – Exactly. And, and in fact, we have this conflation that somehow we locked everybody up and look, lo and behold, the crime rate is down. Well, you know, we, we have – very, very serious scholarship on this that has actually looked at this question and finds out that no, they are disaggregated. And what is more, that in the neighborhoods that are most intensely incarcerated, uh, those places in Chicago and Baltimore and in Ferguson, they actually suffer far more violence. They suffer less public or they endure less public safety. And so, Again, when you say black on black crime or black folks want the war on crime, I mean, it's just this ahistorical statement. Black folks don't start wanting more police in their neighborhoods until two things happen. One, the drug war has already completely overtaken neighborhoods. And two, there's nobody else to call but the police because we have completely decimated all other social service options. So you have a kid who is, you know, running wild and drug addicted and you know, scaring other people in the neighborhood, you know, whereas you might have been able to call a social worker, you might have been able to deal with this before it gets out of hand. Now, call the cops. you got to call the cops. So, again, this is this position that somehow this makes us safer is not just a historical, it is factually incorrect. And, and we have an obligation to keep reminding voters of that. Yeah. Thanks to author and professor Heather Ann Thompson for joining us. I'm Stephen Henderson. We'll see you next time. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.